Welcome to Talk Music to Me. This is Aaron Sell, your host. I'm an avid music lover, concert goer, and fan of all things music. I decided to create Talk Music to Me after attending over 40 shows the year I turned 40. I thought it would be fun to chat with fellow music fans, musicians, and others in the industry and bring those conversations to the world. I'm excited to share episode number two with you. This episode, I had the opportunity to chat with my friend, Chris Newton. So let's go ahead and get to it. Welcome to Talk Music to Me. I'm super excited to have my friend, Chris Newton, here with us today. Thanks from for having me. the Western Sunsets, which is your new band. Yep. Super excited about that. Yeah, me too. Um, I'm happy that you're going to be back playing music again. So Chris and I go back, gosh, I don't even know how many years now. Yeah, long time now, I think. Um, if I was a betting man, I would guess it's probably about eight years now. That's kind of what I was thinking yeah, too. seven or eight years. I think that's when I started in that temporal. Yeah. Like 2011, 2010, something like okay. that. Okay, yeah. okay. So, just a little background. Chris and I used to work when I was back in corporate America. Corporate America, baby. He's still there. Hopefully, someday he will be out of there. <laughs> but he's still there for now. Still doing the side thing with the, the music. Mm-hmm. Which I think is it's kind of interesting because when, when you first started and how like we made our friendship connection was through music. We... Yeah. I don't even remember. I just remember like you always coming back to my desk and us talking music. Yeah. And what we were well. listening to and you were always my okay, what's what's new? What do I need to check out? Yeah. Guy. You know, it's funny I think about that and I remember um for some reason the band the, the Antlers is burned in my brain because the Antlers had just put a new record out, I think, and it was something that I was listening to and I remember being really taken with it and wanting to share it. So mm-hmm. I think when you and I had that mutual, when we determined that we had that mutual interest in music, I, I think that was the band that I had uh, told you that I was listening to at the yeah. moment. And I think yeah. that was the first time that we had done that. So oh, funny. And, and here we are. Better memory years later. than me because I don't remember that. I do have a pretty good memory. That's I just, true. I just remember that you were, whenever I was like, I need something new to listen to. I'd be like, ah, Chris Newton, what do I listen to? What are you listening to right now? And stay tuned listeners for the rest of the uh, podcast because they got some good ones at the end. So you'll want to hang out. For Yay. That. I love that. <laughs> um, so I don't know that I even know the answer to this question. Yeah. And that question is when and how did you first, like, what sparked your interest in music? Like, what was the initial factor, motivating factor? Well, that's an excellent question. Um, you know, music was always kind of an integral part to our family. Growing up, I was an only child, and uh, my mother was kind of the musician of the family. She grew up, you know, listening to music, playing music. She ended up... Uh, playing guitar she played flute so there was always music in the house as I remember and I have this very pivotal memory of growing up because I I grew up in Arvada I'm from Colorado and I remember there was this time when there was the record player and the tape player at the time yeah amazing same in my house (laughs) yeah we had this amazing stereo system that was like downstairs and my parents had all this vinyl and they had some tapes and there were like three memories that I really have that like got me into music. And the first was that I remember my mom pulling out this old nylon six string guitar that she had learned on back in the sixties in Billings, Montana, which was where she's from and strumming some chords, like in my parents' bedroom. And I was really young at this time. And I remember her just singing and playing some chords. And so like two or three, probably a little bit older. I would Four guess five, I was probably, maybe? I bet I was probably about Hudson's age. So I'd say it was probably about five or six. Okay. The memory is pretty visceral. I have a very deep um, understanding of that moment. So yeah, that's, I remember her that's playing amazing. and just being kind of enthralled with the whole idea of being able to pick something up and produce something with it. That was cool. And then um, my parents, had, like I said, they had this great collection of vinyl. And I remember thumbing through it and finding Ram by Paul McCartney of all records. It was like one of the only um, secular records that we had because I grew up in a you know a semi-religious household where 
we didn't necessarily frown on secular music, but we didn't have a whole lot of it in the house, too. So I remember um, when I was really young, this was probably when I was like 10 or 11, really getting into the Beatles and just diving into that catalog. So when I came across that vinyl of Paul McCartney, who was you know obviously a member of the Beatles, I, uh, I pulled it out and I remember putting it on the hi-fi and listening to Ram, like the front side and the back side, and then the front side and the back side. And like just loving that record and um actually getting to the point where i was like would lay on the ground next to the speaker and i would kind of let the music like kind of wash over me so to speak i know that's probably silly to say but it's totally not yeah i i have very similar memories as well only mine was with an eight track oh yeah Yeah. i I think that the eight track thing you know i probably missed it by a few years because all we had was and that actually it's a great i'm glad you said that because that kind of leads me to my third um um, point into like what I really got into music because I remember thumbing through some old cassettes that my dad had and he had like this old really like big case full of cassettes and I remember pulling out um, for some reason he had bootlegged from a friend um, the Beatles live at the Hollywood Bowl why he had that I have no idea but I listened not? to it yeah why not I mean it is a it is a good record right and it's probably the best band of all time right so. I remember listening to that tape over and over and over and over and over. And I had already listened to the Beatles a lot during this point in time. But um, this is probably when I was in high school. Because I remember I had just learned to drive. And our little Toyota pickup truck that I had learned to drive on like only had a cassette deck. That's the only thing you could listen to. Yeah. So I remember listening to that tape over and over and over and over. And just basically... Wearing it out. Wearing it out and, <laughs> and fulfilling my love for the Beatles. Because this was like... The mid-90s when, like, all of those, um, the Beatles, um, documentary had come out on television. I don't know if you remember it. I don't but, like, remember that, but... I, I recorded all three nights because oh, it was gosh. broken up into, like, section one, section two, section three. And, like, one was the early years. Two was, like, the middle years, like, when they kind of got into psychedelics. And then the third was, like, White Album and beyond. So right. I was just breathing in, um, the Beatles at this point in time. And I remember just driving that stupid little Toyota truck from Arvada to Aurora because that's where I went to high school and just wearing that thing out within like two weeks. So that was kind of my intro to music. Um, as far as like my, my passion for listening to music, my parents were one of those parents that said that I needed to learn an instrument when I was growing up. So uh, that basically led me to taking the trumpet, which led me to taking guitar lessons which led me to learning how to play it on my own, which led me to an interest in the piano and vocals. And the and, rest is kind of history. Yeah, now look at you today. <laughs> yeah, look at me. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Not much to look at, folks. but That's why it's a podcast. No, <laughs> I'm kidding. Everyone says I did have a face for radio. So oh, that makes sense. that's so not true. <laughs> so part of our like history is that when we met... Mm-hmm. And I don't remember, was the Cardinal Grey already together or did you form that? And then basically I became a groupie for the Cardinal Grey. You know, I'm trying to remember back. I think that the Cardinal Grey was in its infancy years. Yeah, back then I think Because so there too. was kind of, there was kind of two volumes to the Cardinal Grey. The first was that we had some really good friends of ours. So they were playing um, violin and guitar. And this was our friends, Kathy and John. And when we first started the first, uh, I don't edition. know, the, the first, first yeah, the first the edition Grey. of Cardinal Grey, let's just call it that. It was nothing more than John and Kathy and me getting together in my old house in City Park and playing these kind of acoustic songs, sort of like in the vein of like the Mountain Goats and uh, the Decemberists, stuff okay. like that. And I had this idea that, you know, we should grow the band. I knew these guys that, you know, played music and... I think they'd be a good fit for what we did. Excuse me. And that led us to getting Corey into the band, playing lead guitar with us. And then he pulled in Steve because him and Steve were high school friends from Aurora. So that's kind of how we fleshed that first volume out. And we were very folk-centered. I mean, that was kind of the music that people were playing at the time. And we were no exception. Um, John and my myself were good friends still. And we had a shared love for bands like Tarkio and... Uh, the Decemberists, the Mountain Goats, you know, bands that I previously referenced. But so that's kind of the music that we played. And then we made some changes. Um, our violinist at the time, Kathy, was having her first baby. 
and she left us, you know, right, rightfully so. And we decided that we wanted to play a little bit different music. And without getting into the whole story, we kind of formed 2.0, which was uh, me, Corey, Steve, and, and I mean all the drummers that we ever had. That was kind of the Cardinal Grey's downfall, right? We right. couldn't really ever hold a drummer. But that was, those were kind of the meaty years where we were playing a little bit louder rock and roll. And I yep. think that's kind of where you came on board. So I'd estimate yep. that was like 2012, 2013, something yeah, like that. Yeah, that seems about right. I yeah. know I have a Cardinal Grey poster hanging up in my house. My fondest memory. I'm pretty sure that was 13 or 14. Yeah, I think so. I think it was April of 2014 because I think yep, that... definitely was April. Or 13 because I think that Hudson had just been born like months and, prior. So and I maybe say was, that was one of your last shows for a, a while. It was. Um, but that was a great night. I mean, that was the night mm-hmm. that we sold out the high dive yeah. with our mutual friends, Barry Antler yeah. and Franklin from, yeah. well, what was as tall as buildings. But uh, right. I think he was in a different project at the time. I don't know. That we'd really, we'd have that, to just look at the poster. I know. Sure it's around we, somewhere. We, it is round, but, you know, we're <laughs> in the middle of recording a podcast, so. Oh, right. We'll update when, you know. Yeah. We get that. So, moving forward to currently mm-hmm. what you're focused on. Yeah. And that is your new band. Yeah. The Western Sunsets. Mm-hmm. And tell me how that came together. And, I, I mean, I know it's still kind of in its infancy yeah. as well. Definitely. But what's kind of the motivation and... So, so after the gray broke up, um, we took some time to figure out what we wanted to do. We formed a couple cover bands. We played in a different couple different projects. Um, and you white were there, Shell Road. You were there for white the Shell White Shell Road, Road years, which oh was pretty gosh, fun. Oh my gosh, those were so fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, not many people go out and do a Golden Smog cover band, right? So it, but it, was it was amazing. Cool. It was fun. Um, and I think that's what we needed at the time because... You know, the Cardinal Grey had a pretty good run. Um, we played a lot of shows, but we couldn't ever really record, and we couldn't ever hold a drummer. Tina was a great drummer of ours, and she's still playing in a lot of local bands. Like, uh, I want to say that she's drumming with, like, Two-Tone Wolfpack now, and a couple others, but music was kind of her thing. But um, needless to say, we just couldn't stay together, so we needed to take that time to do something that was really fun. Right. So that's kind of when I decided to put together that White Shell Road project. And after that sort of fell apart, um, not because it was bad, just because it, you know, we only wanted to do it for a certain amount of time. Well, and schedules and timing and you're a dad and you work a full-time job as do the majority of the people in your band. Well, yeah. Full-time jobs. It's it's hard. All those guys are, you know, growing into adulthood, I guess you could say, with Ryan having a baby soon and Eric living out in Tennessee and working at the law school. I mean, we just... Time was a luxury that not all of us really had. So well, everybody grows up, and I mean, you either make that commitment to that this is the life you're going to lead of being in a band versus (laughs) yeah, you know, growing up and adulting. Well, but you know what I've learned in the last I don't know uh, Hudson's almost six now um, is that there is a way to do both, and it's been cool. So I took the time to build a studio. my sister-in-law actually purchased a house kind of over, not actually too far from here, and there was a, a back room that she wasn't going to use, so she kind of gave me carte blanche and told me that I could do whatever I wanted with it. So I um, ended up building a studio back there, totally soundproof, just really cool, and filling it with instruments, and those instruments basically sat for like six months untouched. So ended up um, befriending... A guy who I actually work with now who uh, said he played drums. And basically that was the spark that lit the fuse. Um, started practicing with him and uh, been doing that for about five months now. And uh, we just finally decided to brand ourselves and you know, kind of what gave birth to the Western Sunsets. Right. So, yeah. so you can find the Western Sunsets. Right now they're on Instagram. Eventually, I'm sure they will be other places. Like we would like Facebook to grow our uh, social media, our social media presence. Absolutely, right? Right. we're in our infancy, so to speak. So. Yeah, and yeah. you may know somebody that can help you with that. <laughs> I think but. I do. Yes, <laughs> that's a whole nother topic, <laughs> podcast, whatever. Yeah. So, one of the things that, and I feel like we've had this conversation a little bit, but even I don't know that much 
mm-hmm. about this time of your life. And it really interests me. And that is, quote unquote, the Seattle years. <laughs> the Seattle so years, yes. tell me about the Seattle years and how that really shaped you into the musician you are today. Yeah. Well, I mean, those years were pivotal for kind of turning me into the musician. And what I were those years? So I ended up uh, enrolling to, when I was graduated from high school, I basically picked every college from like Portland up to like Bellingham, Washington, and I put in applications. So you just wanted schools. to be on the, the West Coast in that scene? Not or, so much, or was it? Not so much the scene, because I didn't really know what that meant at the okay. time. You know, I was a high school kid living But in, that would have been like mid-late 90s, right? Yeah. I uh, so officially grunge. moved to Seattle in September of 1998. So we were a little okay, post at that time. Yep. Um, but we were like kind of, I don't want to say we were in an indie rock infancy by any means, because indie rock is, you know, most of your listeners probably know has been around since, you know, David Bowie put the Berlin albums out. Um, but it was a good time to be living in Seattle. So I moved there in 98 and started school at Seattle University Went to school, thought I was going to be a doctor, didn't turn out, <laughs> and uh, basically ended up just seeing a ton of shows, and it was, a, it was a cool time to be living up there, because we were able to see bands like Death Cab for Cutie play at this little place called um, The Sit and Spin, which is like a little venue that they How many have people around. did it hold? I think it held something like maybe like 125 or something like that. Awesome. And the night that we went to go see them play, they were um, touring on that first album of theirs, which came out in 98, and I think there was like half capacity or something like that. Wow. So, so that was kind of cool, because we got to make a lot of connections with a lot of people in the local scene, um, specifically... Ben and Chris, we were, I, I was a, a DJ, of course, the first thing that I did when I went to college was so I became a DJ. So you're referring to Ben Gibbard and Chris Walla, yes, of course, yeah. of Death Cab. Yeah, yes. yeah. So we um, were able to, um, through the connections at the radio station, because I was a radio station DJ, uh, pull them in and do like a solo show where, like I said, at that album, I can't remember that album that came out in 98, I want to say like... Ah, I can't remember. Maybe you can look it up while I'm talking. But they were just starting out. They had moved down from Bellingham, and they were playing like local shows with Harvey Danger and bands like that. So they were gracious enough to come by the studio, uh, which was nothing, and play like this acoustic set for us of like amputations and a few other songs that came out on that first record. I want to say it's like something about airplanes, something about airplanes released August 18th, 1998, which exactly that was just a couple months prior to starting school. So, so I mean, where do we go from there? So getting heavily involved in the local scene, seeing as many shows as I can, which is a little hard being underage, but, um, I actually had my fake ID at the time. I'm sorry, mom and dad, I had one. (laughs) Um, taken away from me and thrown into the street when I tried to go see Elliot Smith on the XOXO tour because, well, it didn't help because the, um, <laughs> the fake ID that I had said that I was like five, six. Oh. And for those who know me, I'm six, four. Now. I had the opposite problem. Mine said I was like five, eight. And for those who know me, I'm like five, one and a half pushing it. Yeah. So I was really pushing it considering that I've been six, four since I was like 17 years old. Right. So. But mom and dad, I only had that fake ID to go see those shows. So anyway, that was thrown out in the middle of the street. And I couldn't go see him because that was like one of the last times that he would tour, obviously. Right. And the the point is beside me. Um, basically, we were able to just immerse ourselves in the local scene. I mean, we went and hung out at this restaurant called Bimbo's Burrito Kitchen, which is basically like if you were a musician in Seattle in the late 90s, the early 2000s, that's where you worked slinging burritos for everyone okay so we met all the people from chris is weird and that obviously leads us to ben bridwell who became the lead guy for band of horses who you've had the opportunity to meet i have yes i have a i have signed posters yeah yeah Yeah. and creighton barrett who played in a couple local bands the new mexicans and then crypter and so it was just a fun time to be hanging out on capitol hill because you could go excuse me um you could go anywhere and run into people who were in these bands who you really loved and were putting out records and 
it was just really cool. So that is that is awesome. So yeah. in addition, you also were next door neighbors. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say or, that we were technically next door ne- neighbors as much as we lived in the same, same. neighborhood. Okay. So the cool story is that um, I was playing in a group. This was probably my senior year of college, so this was like two thousand one. I was playing in a group called, gosh, what were our names? Etna Ignites, I think. How we got that name. So many names. I mean, (laughs) can't be expected to remember all the names of the bands you've been in. I have been in lots of bands um, (laughs) in my Seattle and my Denver years. But um, So I was in this band, and I basically got pulled in to play bass guitar, and I didn't really play bass. I didn't own a bass. like So I basically went to the bar one night, and Ben was slinging drinks that night. And I was talking to him, and I said... Yeah, I just joined this band. I don't. I just. I got recruited to play bass. I've never played bass. I'm looking forward to it. Do you know of anyone that I can buy a bass from? And he looked at me and he's like, "That's crazy, man!" Like in his southern drawl that he has, because you know he's from Carolina, so he's kind of got this southern twang to him. And he's like, I, "I'm looking to actually sell the bass that I play with right now. How much money do you got in your pocket right now?" I'm like. <laughs> I only got like twenty bucks. He's like, "I'll take it." So I gave him twenty dollars. Sweet. And then, like, two days later, I think that was, like, a Friday night, Sunday, I trekked down to his house, which was kind of cool because that's where all, like, the indie rock guys lived. So there was, like, Jeff Montoya and Creighton Barrett and Ben, and there were a couple other guys living in that house. But uh, they were all in local bands, and they were all bands that we would go see. It was super fun. So I walk in there, and he's like, hey, man, you know, and he lets me in, cracks me a beer, which, by the way, was Rainier because that's all we drank at the time because it was the cheapest thing you could find in the Northwest. And he gives me this, like, beautiful, um, what was it? Like a, it was a Squire bass, but it was, like, this beautiful Squire P bass that was, like, red. And my biggest regret is when I moved back to Colorado in, like, 2005, 2004, 2004, that I left it there. I didn't bring it with me because I didn't have any room in my car at the time. So, I wish I could have kept it because it would have been a good storyteller for, like, Yeah, like. Yeah. So we were That's we were neighbors. We were close enough that if they needed sugar, they would come to our house and get sugar. Right. So, yeah. Well, that's neighbors in my book. Right. And I think that, yeah. that that signifies that we were close enough that it could happen. So, exactly. Yeah. Well, I think that's a super cool story. And it, it actually kind of reminds me of like later 2010, like eight, 2008 to 2012, like... Nathaniel Rateliff and um, Gregory Allen Isakoff and like going to see them at these small venues in Denver where like Nathaniel would be outside smoking a cigarette before the show and you'd walk up and be like, oh, there's Nathaniel. Or you'd just run it like run into him wherever around town. Yeah. And compared to now, 2017, where he's selling out Red Rocks. Yeah. And, you know, I've been seeing him for years and years and can't even get a ticket. And yeah, it, it, it for me, it's the, I, I hate it when people say like, oh, well, he was an overnight success because he wasn't an overnight success. He worked super hard for years and years and years. Absolutely. And, you know, finally got that hit that blew him up. Yeah, that's something I love about. Nathaniel and Joseph and Pat and all those guys in that band is that they've been cutting their teeth on music in the Denver scene for a long time. Like a long long time. time. And And I think I was probably late to the game even with them. I'm not sure. Um, I I feel like I was later. Yeah. I I mean, my my friend Amanda had had been seeing them for longer. Well, so when I moved back to Colorado in 04, 05, I tried my best to immerse myself in the Denver scene, just having been gone for a long time. Uh, it wasn't difficult at that time. I mean, everybody who I had met, um, James Yardley, who ended up being the bass player in Stink Rattle Rattlesnake, and I didn't really know Nathaniel and um, Joseph very well, but I did meet Patrick Meese, who's the drummer right. in um, the Night Sweats. A few times, actually at a wedding of our, uh, we went to a mutual friend's wedding way back then and got a chance to talk to him. And he was in a band called Meese at the time, who did pretty well. And, um, I mean, 
I think that uh, that I love about those guys is that they're all super down to earth. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that they let success, you know, determine who they are as far as um, human beings. You know, they just, they've cut their teeth for so many years and they toured relentlessly and they really made a name for themselves. And I'm happy for them. I mean, the mere fact that they could go on Fallon and and have an amazing performance and keep it going. I mean, it's just a testament to them as musicians. I mean, they're all super talented and uh, I'm I'm happy for him. I I 100% agree. Like, I wish them all the success in the world. Yeah. My one complaint, and it has nothing to do with them, is the scalpers and the people that ruin it for, like, the true fans that, you know, like, I can't, I can't even get a ticket. Yeah. And, and that's disappointing to me. Totally. You know? You know, that makes me think, how many, how many shows have you taken in this year? No. So this, at, at, at least 45. 45 that I've written on and I have accounted and for. And you had a 40 for 40 challenge this year, I didn't did, you? I did, yes. So I'm an overachiever. You blew that out of the water. Yeah. Good for you. Yep. You know. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think settle. that those guys, um, I don't know. I'm just, I'm really proud of them. I think that they've done great work. And, you know, Denver, Colorado is finally being recognized as kind of a local musician scene and it should be. Yeah. I've been out of it for a year, few years, so I don't really know what's going on now, but when we were playing in it and meeting people, I mean, everybody was a super friendly and be super excited to just get on a bill. I mean, there was a night where we played a show down at the Walnut room and we had Anthony Rucktech and his oh, yeah. midnight children play with us. Um, and, you would never meet these people before, but they would just come on and play a bill with you, and they were super friendly, and it was fun. And I think it still is fun, and I'm looking forward to getting back into it. So. Yeah. Well, and we have so many great venues, and then, you know, there's the UMS, the Underground Music Showcase. There's yeah. the Westward Music Showcase. There was Velorama this year. I think it was our the first or second year for Velorama, mm-hmm. um, which actually Death Cab played yeah that's right Dollarama. didn't wilco play that as well i was there yeah i didn't go to wilco night i went to i only had tickets for one night but yeah that's cool um so i mean i i definitely and and then you think about like the lumineers came from here i mean they didn't originally come from here but they yeah. i hear what you're saying yeah no i think it's a hotbed and yeah. i think that the media has latched to that a little mm-hmm. bit and now i think denver is i don't want to say denver is like on the same um Spectrum. Spectrum is like Seattle was in the early 90s. I don't think it's to that extent, but I do think that we're being recognized now. And I think it has a lot to do with those guys, you know. Mm So I agree. It's good. So I, uh, let's move on from Seattle. Uh, So I have a few questions for you. So we already already talked about um, kind of how you got your start in music and a little bit about what instruments you play. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, what would, do you remember the very first song that you learned to play? Oh, that's a good one. So when I was a teenager, I learned to play on my mom's old nylon six strings. So it was kind of nice because, um, you couldn't necessarily hurt your fingers like you could on a steel string guitar. And I really remember, gosh, what was it? That's a really good question, Aaron. Um, should I have prepped you for that? No, I'm no, no, sorry. no, no, no. I'm, it, I think that's the beauty of the podcast, right? right? Is that you get people to like kind of wonder what's going on in their own lives. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that the first song that I ever learned to play was, um, oh gosh, that is an excellent question. So I might bifurcate the answer a little bit. It could have been Thumb by Dinosaur Jr., which was a big song that I loved at the time. It, or it could have been Here Comes the Sun by George Harrison, obviously from the Beatles. How old do you think you were? I was a teenager at the time. because so I took 15, that, 16? Or? Yeah, because I took that first lesson. <laughs> I took... My my parents were so sweet. My mom actually worked for the district up in Arvada. So she could get like these discounts on like anything related to North Jeffco Parks and Rec. So... She signed me up for this intro to guitar class, and I must have been able to drive at the time because I remember being there, being able to get there and back from it. So I was 16, I think. And I sat in this like <laughs> semicircle of like all ages and all experiences. And I remember there was like 
one guy to my right who only had like three fingers on his right hand. He was like, oh, I just wanted to learn how to play. And then I had a guy on my left who had a t-shirt that said jam for the lamb. And he wanted to like play Christian rock. And it was a very interesting experience. But so that makes me feel like better. Like if a guy with three fingers can play guitar, <laughs> then maybe me with my little teeny baby hands can there, actually play someday. There, there's always hope. Yes. There's always hope. And actually, you know, what's kind of funny is the guy who only had like two and a half fingers, I think, um, ended up being able to play like so much better than the rest of us. And the guy who, you know, was like wanting to play Christian rock music was like a shredder. Like these were intro classes and these guys were playing like blues, pentatonic licks, like, and you're anyway, like, you I need to move up in I, the, the lessons. Like, you need to move to the, like, intermediate or advanced. Well, part of me thinks that they were, like, you know, trying to impress people a little okay. bit by, like, starting, like, the intro yeah. class and being mm-hmm. so good. But anyway, I'm sure that those two guys are probably rock stars now. And we probably right. don't we even just, know who know. they are, but they're out there. So so that was we'll my first experience. just for the two-and-a-half-fingered guy yeah, 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 yeah. playing guitar. I remember that he actually told us, like, <laughs> he was kind of a joker. So he came in the first night, and before we, like, were all pulling our, like guitars out of our cases and we're getting ready to sit in the half circle with each other and he's like there's only seven and a half rules to remember when operating a snowblower and he held his fingers oh. nice we didn't know really whether to laugh right. or to like yeah. you know, grimace yeah. that, that's a tough one <laughs> that, that whole scene is like just left an indelible mark within my brain because I can remember exactly what everybody was wearing. Oh, funny. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, he, he, good memory. He, he rolled with it, so yeah. I figured the rest of us can too. Yeah. So that was my first lesson, um, and I think those were my first two songs. So I feel like this is going to be a good story because I know you. Yeah. So do you get nervous? before a performance. I think you already know the answer to that, don't you? I know, but I want you to share. There there was a situation that I recall when uh, the Cardinal Grayer was playing a show at the uh, Walnut Room, and I think I might remember you passing um, an open bathroom door and watching me actually vomit. (laughs) (laughs) And it's crazy to me that you get nervous still. Yeah. After all these years. In fact, you recently played for my 40th birthday and you were nervous about that show. And that was really just a group of like all of our friends and it didn't matter, you know, and I know it was a new band and new songs and you weren't sure how it was going to go down, but it just, I would love to hear more about like, because I know there are many people that like that never goes away. Does it? Does it go away for you once you feel more comfortable, or is that always present? It's always present, and I think that the reason for it is that there's this... Um, and if you were to line up a row of all of my band and ex-band members, like, down the... Well, where are we? We're in your kitchen. We're in your <laughs> dining room right now. I think that, that that row of people could probably go to your back door, probably. I mean, I've been in lots of bands, and... I think that all of my ex-bandmates and current bandmates would tell you that one of the things for me is that I tend to be a little bit of a perfectionist when it comes to music. Not so much that the songs need to be good, but that when we present the songs to the world, that they need to be done in their best possible manner. I remember I was in a band. I was... Gosh, I might have been a senior in college. I may have been right out of college. And in typical college fashion, like all of us worked jobs where we didn't really have careers. Um, my my best friend, Mike Peter, who lives in Salt Lake with his wife, lived, used to live in Seattle. He worked in a photo lab. My friend Brian Bingold like worked at the QFC or the Fred Myers. I can't remember. It was basically the equivalent of like our King Supers. I worked throwing pizzas. Our drummer, Matt, like basically had the only real job because he was like seven years older than us, but he traveled around and like fixed photo machines like throughout the Pacific Northwest. So he like his territory was all the way from like Southern Oregon to like Eastern Utah to like Alaska. He would travel pretty consistently. But (laughs) the point of this story is that if you asked those three guys back in 2001 and you asked the guys that I play with now they would say that I have a certain personality that if we're going to play it out, we need to play it right. So I think that's kind of where the nervousness comes from, is that the songs are special to me, and 
I want to present them in the way that we played them at our best when we were practicing. And when we don't, it's discouraging to me. And I think, you know, coupled with that, there's also just a general stage fright that I think I've had ever since I was in the pit band in high school. So Well, and I think there's always, no matter what stage or, you know, what you're doing, when you put yourself in the spotlight, I think no matter how seasoned or practiced or, you know, how many times you've done this, I feel like there's always going to be that at least a little pit of nervousness in your stomach. Well, and I think that you you nailed it. And I think that what goes in hand in hand with that is that, um, there's also a, like a general like excitement about it too. Yeah. Like yep. there's just this feeling that I'm really excited for this. I want to do the best that I possibly can. And I'm not going to wish for anything less than that. Right. So kind of along those same lines, is there a musician or artist that, you would be like super nervous to meet or, you know, have a conversation with or play in front of. Yeah. That's a great question. And actually I do have a really good answer to that. So growing up in the, you know, early, mid, late nineties, I've always had this love for dinosaur junior. So I would say that if I was to meet Jay Mascus, it would be an out of body experience for me. I mean, the guy is a genius. He's super awkward. If someone asked me, hey, the Western Sunsets are going to open up for Jay, Masta, Jay Mascus or Dinosaur Jr. or The Fog or any of those bands, like, it would be t- terrible. I mean... So do you think that you could actually have terrible. a conversation with it? I or do you think that you'd be in shock and be like, oh my God, and like shake his hand and be like, uh, uh, I think it'd be one of those experiences that I could get through, but it would be, uh, you know anyone can meet their like favorite musician and they're like brought to a pile of like ashes. And I think that I'd probably be the same thing with him because he's just, I mean, he he just created indie rock guitar. Like he's just a legend, like in our circles, you know? Right. So to meet him would be pretty cool. Yeah. So yeah, mine's Stevie Nicks and I've hugged her and I have a like selfie before selfies were even a thing. Yeah. And I had tears streaming down my face. I didn't have to get to have a conversation, but I guarantee if I ever get the opportunity, I, you know, I, I hope that I would be able to keep my composure and I, ask her a question or two, but I don't know that I could. You know, I, with, you know, Tom Petty having passed away right? not too long ago, I've been on this huge Tom Petty kick. So yeah, I've me been too. listening to a lot of his and one that actually just came onto the radio when I was like, well, onto, onto the uh, MP3 player when I was driving over here was him and Tom's um, Don't Go... Stop Dragging My Heart Around. Stop Dragging My Heart Around. Yeah. And it's just... And that's like one of my favorites. Yeah. It is a good song. Yeah. We, we'd like to try to cover that with the Western Sunset, so you should probably... I would, I would love that. You should start practicing. So could, oh. Someone's got to sing the female part. Okay. <laughs> I've actually sang it at karaoke. Yeah? Yeah. All right. So, okay. All right. I'll hold you to it because, oh. you know, it's on record. Now, right. So. Although I could edit it out. Mm-hmm. So That's true. There, you do hold the keys There is that. I do yeah. hold the keys. Okay. So, <laughs> we're, we're getting towards the end of this. Okay. Um, so, what I would like to have happen is first, I would like to have you share what you're listening to now. Mm-hmm. And then maybe we can have like a special treat for our listeners and you'll really? actually do a little performance. Oh, this is off the cuff. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think we could probably pull something pull something out. We'll see. Okay. Yeah. okay. All right. So why don't you share with us and this let, let's just pretend like we're back at JM <laughs> in our little cubes and we're talking to each other and we're like, hey, what are you listening to now? Oh, yeah. So that's a great question. I've actually, I've been living in the past lately. Really? Yeah. That's not really like you. And I'm living kind of like decade by decade by decade. So I guess if I was to answer that, like, honestly, I would say that I would trifurcate that into like the 1980s, the 1990s and like present day. So I've really been on a huge REM kick lately. So I've been listening to a lot of old REM, like specifically the Murmur record and, um... Oh, what's the other one? Were you an REM fan oh. back in the day? Okay, oh, yeah. and I was Absolutely. too. And I've 
completely gone off course, I feel like. Y- you know so what? I wonder if I should revisit them. Do, do we have time for a little uh, mm-hmm. story? Yeah, of course. All right. So work took me to Winder, Georgia, of all places. Okay. Just not too recently. I think this was back in August. And Winder is not too far from Athens, which oh, obviously right. is the you know the birthplace of great bands like the B-52s and R.E.M., Whitespread. Oh, I mean, there's... Of course, I'm going to say there's tons of bands that come from there, and I can only name three. But anyway, the point of this story is that I was kind of take, able to take this um, unofficial REM tour of my own. If you go on my Instagram, you can actually kind of see photos from it. So uh, I started, we were staying in Winder. Oh, excuse me, we were staying in Athens. We were really close to the college campus. So the first night I went to Wextry Records, which is like the record store where Peter Buck was working at the time, and he met Michael Stipe, and they basically formed REM in this record store. And then I went to this... I love stories like that. Yeah. Aww. Isn't that cool? <laughs> yeah. And then I went to this barbecue joint. Um, I can't remember the name of it. Um, there's a, there's an REM song. Your listeners, since they're so diverse with this stuff, they'll probably be able to like be like, oh, that guy's talking about that song, but I can't name it. So... Um, there's this barbecue restaurant that they used to hang out at all the time because it was really close to Peter's house. I guess you could just walk down. And there's this really great documentary called um, some, uh, Beyond the Music, something like it's about like Athens, Georgia. So it's okay. basically about like the music scene in like 1984 through like 1989. And they have all these great bands like Pylon and Guadalcanal Diary and REM. The Love Tractors, like all these great bands. So basically, the gist of my story is that I was there. I was able to take this really cool, unofficial REM tour where I saw where they played their first show, where they met, where they played at the 40 Watt Club. So it kind of sparked this interest in this whole Jangle Pop um, stuff from the 1980s. So I've been listening to a lot of REM, a lot of Love Tractor, a lot of Guadalcanal Diary, um, Pylon. So I've been listening to that. I've also been listening to a lot of like early 90s stuff. Obviously, I'm kind of always been a huge Dinosaur Jr. fan, so I've been kind of reliving my early teens okay. with that stuff. And most recently, I've actually just really gotten into this artist named... Well, he goes under the, the name Gold Star Music. He's from Los Angeles. And there's a very... Um, I feel like I've heard Gold Star Music. You yes. probably have. Yeah. He's been touring with um, a lot of people. Pinehurst and Phoebe Bridgers. She's another gal that I've really been into lately. He was actually touring with Phoebe Bridgers. But he's got this kind of like... Um, Dylan meets uh, Neil Young meets Gold Ryan Adams years. Like he's kind of got this really cool singer-songwriter vibe to him. He's kind of unknown. I, mean, I wouldn't say he's unknown. He's touring and stuff, but not a lot of people know about him. Yeah, so, so I, I do a lot of Alt Nation from Sirius XM yeah. listening, and I feel like they've been playing him. Well, if you do songs at the outro of this lovely podcast, oh, you should do a Gold Star song. I will. I will have to uh, see what I can find. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the big question is... Are you willing to to do a little performance? Yeah, I mean, do you want a cover or do you want an old Grace song? Have you thought about like what you want? Um, I think I'm going to leave that up to you okay. because I mean, I I hate to put I'm already putting you on the spot to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're actually just so everybody listening to this knows we're we're sitting at my house, which we've mentioned, but. Um, so Chris and I are friends and a lot of times when Chris comes over, the first thing he does is I have this old Gibson guitar that was my dad's and he almost always, I mean, like it's basically like the first thing he picks up when he walks in the door. I mean, he, he asks, even though he knows he doesn't even have to ask (laughs) because it's just like a given. It's a beautiful guitar. And I love it that it gets played because I, while I have many guitars and I love them, this is, I mean, it is my favorite. And I don't play. So Which it, you should. I know I need to learn. I mean, that guitar is just sitting over there. It goes unplayed. It, it gets like, dusty. I have to dust it. Yeah. It is beautiful. I mean, not to throw it back on you, but do you know the story of that guitar? I really don't. So, 
That was your dad's, right? It was my dad's. And how did you come by it? I my my dad passed away um, eleven years ago, and I inherited all of his guitars and vinyl and which you've got quite a collection. Else. Of. I do. Yeah. That's actually not even all of the it's, vinyl, but it's growing. It is. Um, so yeah, I have a number of guitars. I think my number is somewhere around like seven or eight guitars. And, but that's the one that is displayed and... I remember when I first came over here, you had this thing sitting in a case in the garage. I did and he yelled at me. (laughs) You don't let a beautiful 1964 Gibson guitar, which I should tell you, has the original strings and never goes out of tune. That's the sign of, uh, of a beautiful guitar. You have a good one. I think it's a cool testament to your dad just sitting there in the front room like that. Yeah. So yeah. if you if you're open to playing, yeah, I guess um, maybe say what you're gonna play. Okay, and then let's do it. All right, I have to think about it a little bit. Okay, you kind of got me on the I, spot here. I know, I know. That's I mean, if I didn't put you on the spot, what kind of podcast would this be? I mean, it'd be like boring. Like let's just talk. I don't know. How many podcasts have you done so far? This is only gonna be number two. Three? Oh really? Yeah. Oh, I got the silver. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Better than the bronze. All right, so I will do that. I think what I'll play is a cover because I don't have anything original on the top of my head of lyrics that I can actually remember. So I'm going to play a, a cover by an artist. Um, it's because a young guy out of Philadelphia called uh, Sandy Alex G. Have you ever heard of him? I have not. So, I originally heard about Sandy Alex G because he opened for Fleet Foxes when they came to town. I knew nothing about this kid because he literally is a kid. He's only like 21 years old. He's from Philly. He's put out like eight records or something and he's only 21 years old. Wow. And he basically is just a, a lyrical mastermind. He's got great lyrics and just writes really good songs. And I saw a uh, version of him playing this song, Bobby, which is the song that I'm going to play on KEXP, and just being really enthralled with it because the lyrics are so so strange and the chords are really cool, so maybe I'll just take a shot at that. Okay. Are you good with that? I, I like it. I like new music, and let's do it. All right, cool.
with my heart the colors blue and purple start to bleed into and endless dark it's only you it's only you Well, that was fantastic. And seriously, what a special treat to have Chris do a song for us live. So thank you all for listening to Talk Music to Me. And may all your favorite bands stay together. (laughs) 